Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Last week, um, that the term foreknowledge has nothing to do with foreordained, it has nothing to do with predestination, it has nothing to do with destined. If foreknowledge has to do with knowing prior, knowing something about the, the person beforehand. Before what? Before the person is born. Okay. So based on, just to recap, foreknowledge, the Calvinist put into the word foreknowledge, foreordain, if you, if you recall that. And so they impregnate the word with other meanings. And the simple understanding of foreknowledge, all the way up until Augustine, was that God knew people beforehand. Okay? Now, we, I think we have to say that, no doubt about it, theologically, because God is omniscience. His omniscient. And because of that, God knows all. But here's another thing I want you to understand about foreknowledge to add into this. Um, the Hebrew concept of knowledge is the word to know. And sometimes it's the word in Hebrew is used to know intimately in sexual relationships, where it says Adam knew Eve. And other times it's the idea of intimate knowledge and experience with the individual. Okay? So foreknowledge of, the foreknowledge of God doesn't simply mean that God knows about somebody in the future. Because God is an eternal being. Therefore, because we're speaking from the perspective of God, God's foreknowledge doesn't necessarily have to do with him, but it has to do with us in a linear time space because with God, everything is happening at once with God. Because he's not in the space-time continuum, he's out of our time-space continuum. Therefore, this is why he's the great I am. He is who who was, who is, and is to come, past, present, and future. He is intimately involved with all linear history at once. Now, that's a hard concept to get around, but the Jews understood this, and you have to understand this with foreknowledge. So with foreknowledge, the idea in the Hebrew is the idea that God intimately knows and has experience with this individual even before the person's created. Well, how can God have experience with somebody that is not even created yet in the space-time continuum? Because he's outside of time. Now, I want you to get your hands wrapped around this. God is experiencing you right now in the future, and you're not even in the future. Right now, God can, can, is in the future, he's in the present, and he's in the past, all at the same time. Therefore, God is having a relationship with you right now in the new heaven and the new earth in New Jerusalem. But he's also having a relationship with you right now. He's also had is having a relationship with you when you were born. Now, I know from our standpoint as humans, that's hard to get our minds wrapped around that. Because, but God is in the eternal now. There is no past, present, and future with God. It's now. He is. 
And therefore, he has a relationship with you from your past, present, and your future. Now, you're not in the future. You're in a linear space-time continuum. But God is seeing you as if you would see a parade from a balcony, if that makes sense. So if I'm in a high enough balcony on a building, I can see where the parade ends, I can see that where the parade begins, and I can see in the middle of the parade, right? And therefore, if I was God, I could enter into any point of that linear history I wanted. In fact, I am in every point of that history in that linear time period because I'm in the eternal now. That's why the Hebrew word of knowledge incorporates the idea of experience. So when you look at the word foreknowledge, it means that God has had experience with us, is having experience with us, and will have an experience with us. How can he do that? Because he's eternal. And I know that's kind of mind-bending, but if you don't incorporate the eternal now into foreknowledge, you will misunderstand it from a Calvinistic standpoint. Where Calvinism has... God in eternity past, or even Arminianism has God in eternity past looking forward through the corridors of time. That is the most unbiblical thing you could say about God. God is not looking ahead. He's in the future already. He's in the present and he's in the past. He doesn't have to look down the corridors of time. He is in time everywhere. Because of his omniscience, his omnipresence, he is everywhere. Now, that's one more thing I wanted to add to that, and this is one thing Calvinists fail to understand, is the Jewish concept of knowledge. It's not that God knows facts about you in the future and what you would do. He has experience with you. Now, that's mind-blowing. That's absolutely mind-blowing, but that's what Paul is keying in on. So therefore, he says, For he, for he who, uh, whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and notice what the predestined word, predestination is to be. It Does it say he also predestined us to be saved and predestined some to be damned? Is that what it says? What does it say? To be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Ah. In the four places where predestination is used, it never says predestinated to be saved or lost. It is always connected to be conformed to the image of Christ or to be conformed to holiness. Therefore, predestination has to do with God's intention in salvation for anyone who believes. His intention is that once you become a believer, what he has predestinated is that you will be conformed to the image of Christ one day. And ultimately, you will be like his son. Not in an ontological sense, but you'll be like, him, like Jesus morally and you will have eternal life given to you. So, this is just a plain reading of the text. Now, how could anyone 
take this text when it says predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and say the predestination has to do with salvation. What would you have to do theologically in order to misinterpret what it just says? What's the problem? Because I want to show you the fallacy in reading the reading of Calvinism into this text. What would you have to do in order to not just take it in the plain sense in which it's taking? You have to commit what we call eisegesis. You're reading into the text something that's not there. You're putting your own presuppositions and your own theology into the word predestination. That's all. And what does predestination mean from an English word? I have determined something beforehand. What has he determined beforehand? That for every believer, he would do what? Conform them to his son. That's it. It's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. Just read what it says. Why do I have to read a, a, the predestination with a pregnant meaning of incorporating salvation? That's not what he's, Paul's even talking about. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, now he adds that on to solidify what he's talking about. So we're made like the image of Christ. And so the firstborn among many brethren has to do with the resurrection. Messiah is the firstborn of the resurrection because he's the first to be resurrected, glorified. And then we will follow that. So therefore, he has the, the, the preeminent position of being the firstborn among many brethren. He was resurrected first, glorified, and then we too will be resurrected and glorified likened unto him. That's what Paul, he, he puts the nail in the coffin at that point. That's what this is for. Okay. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, predestined to do what? Let's not forget. Be conformed to the image of Christ. These he also called. Now, what did we say call meant? If you go back to your first notes on um, page one, to those who are the called according to his purpose, you remember what the called mean. It's a label given to believers who, according to Matthew 22, do what? Matthew 22 is about the wedding feast, right? So Paul is using that language of the wedding feast. The, the invitation is sent out, and those who respond, respond, and they go into the, 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 the inner uh, courtyard, and the wedding host will supply the wedding clothes for those who have been, who accepted the invitation, and, and therefore, Jesus ends that parable with the, the, the concept, many are called, but few are chosen. Call means invited, but few are chosen. Chosen for what? To receive the righteousness of Christ based on what? Why were they chosen? Because they responded to the invitation according to that parable. And therefore, they're given the term chosen. The chosen ones or the called ones. The ecclesia is the called out ones. So when you go back and read verse 30, so we got predestination. We know what that means. We know whom he called. 
that means that he calls many, few are chosen, but if you do become the one who in, takes the invitation, you are given the designation, the chosen one or the called out ones. Okay? That's a designation. And these, he says, he does what with them? In order to make them more like Christ, to conform them to the image of Christ, what does he do with them? These he did what? What are the, what are the things he mentions here? He also justified to make them like Christ, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And ultimately, in glorification is our resurrection and the elimination of the sin nature, and we're made unto Christ. Now, in this passage, as you as I have you seen right here, this is what the Calvinists call the golden chain. And they say those five things are linked together in order. It's called their or they determine that this is the order salutis of salvation. This is the way it happens. And you can't unlink this chain. And so notice what the order salutis for the Calvinists is based on this passage and misinterpreting it. So he foreknows people, then he predestinates people, he calls people, he justifies people, and he glorifies people. You catching all those phrases? Okay. So in the order salutis of Calvinism, they say that these are linked together. Okay, so, so if I, I'm going to take the Calvinist interpretation, and I want to unpack that a little bit. So if this is the golden chain that must happen, there's some parts in it that are missing. That we know the scriptures teach about. Oh. What parts are missing in this passage about salvation that Paul's not pointing out for some reason? Faith is not pointed out. Because that's an integral part of being saved. So why does Paul not mention faith? What is not also mentioned in this passage? Repentance? What else not repent? What, what else is not mentioned? There's a key thing in salvation that we're doing right now. As far as our salvation, discipleship with another name, another name. Sanctification is not mentioned. Why doesn't Paul mention sanctification, for goodness sake? That's integral to salvation, yes? It's us being conformed to the image of Christ. He's just been talking about it. But Paul mysteriously leaves this out. Paul must have forgot about salvation. Why is Paul leaving it out? He's just talked about faith is the thing that justifies you in Romans. That's his whole point. That's what Romans is about, right? Justification by faith. But he's not mentioning it in the Calvinistic golden chain. Ah, we must have a problem here. Are you smelling a rat? Are you, are you, are you realizing what they're doing with texts? So they say this chain is unbroken. It can't be unlinked. I'm telling you this chain so-called that they have made up is not the chain of salvation, nor is it the order salutis. It is only giving a guarantee to the believer what God does from his side 
to ensure their salvation. All the way to glorification, adoption, and resurrection. But it's leaving out the what part. I just mentioned it, faith, sanctification. Yes, you got it. Loopy's got it. What did you say that again? Our part. Isn't that so slick of them? To play a game and to realize that Paul is speaking from God's standpoint what he does to ensure salvation, but he doesn't mention what we're doing because he's already mentioned it. Isn't that pretty slick of them to take that out of context and say, see, to unsuspecting, uninformed believers who follow their guidance, say, see, Paul is saying, here's the five chains, and here's the five things, and this is what he does, and this is, you're just going to have to live with it. That is intellectual dishonesty by that pastor and by that theologian. That is absolute dishonesty. To say that's all that's involved in salvation is right there in Romans 30. That is, that's, I'm, I'm, I get so angry about that because they know what game they're playing. You can't say that that's the only things involved in salvation because there's our part. And that's not mentioned. But that's not Paul's intention. His Paul, Paul is trying to say, that nothing can separate you because all of what God has done for you, right? If he, he's not emphasizing what we're doing for ourselves as far as faith, sanctification. Because sanctification, why, why did Paul put sanctification in there? Because that is a part of what God does, but what's the, the problem with sanctification? God wants us to be sanctified in our life, right? But there's a problem with our sanctification, what is the problem? We have the sin nature. We are not, because of our own free will and our sin nature, guaranteed in this life to be fully made like him. Because we can resist the growth. We can resist becoming like Christ, and we, we just buckle down and we rebel. Even as a Christian, you can rebel to grow. But notice he mentions glorification, okay? What glorification really is, is the, fin the finality of sanctification that even though you, you um, were sanctified, I don't know, let, let's just give numbers so we know we're, how we're to conceptualize this. Let's say you, you only got 45% of being made like the image of Christ, okay? And you resisted that. So he only made it to 45%. I know that's crazy, but I'm just trying to give an analogy. You will be judged at the Bema seat for that lack of conforming yourself to the image of Christ because you're responsible for your own sanctification. You work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, but you are ultimately responsible how much you will be sanctified. Therefore, your judgment at the Bema seat is based on that. But what God promises every believer, and I'm going to hold you accountable for your sanctification, but ultimately what I promise you, I will make sure you're conformed to the image of Christ in final sanctification, which is called glorification, and I will remove your sin nature, and I will make you morally like my son ultimately. But I will reward you on you doing it for yourself in cooperation with me in your sanctification. Does that make sense? 
So what God is promising, he's promising ultimate sanctification irregardless of where you, you got in your own personal sanctification. He's promising ultimate sanctification to make me like Christ. Okay. If you cooperate, if you yield. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's him, but it's, 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 it's not a monogir, monor, monogir, mon, it's not monergism, where it's just only God. Our scientific, we're responsible to cooperate with the power and the new nature that has been given to use the tools, and therefore that's why we're to blame for it, and not him. But yes, it's a, it, it, I don't know if you want to use the word symbiotic. It's a symbiotic relationship versus, it is him. Yes. Yes. If you yield and if you're obedient. If you yield. But the believer can stop the whole thing. A believer can say, I'm not yielding in this area. I'm not growing. I don't want to grow. I'm done. I don't want any more. And therefore, all the tools that are available to them to grow are useless. Because they won't be used. The Holy Spirit is being resisted. The obedience is not being done. The new nature is not being accessed. The life of Christ is not being accessed. And therefore, the growth of the individual just sputters. Now, so yeah, so Lupi's right. It's not completely you. It's a symbiotic relationship that is dependent on your will, if that makes sense. If you're willing... He'll take you through it. If you're not, he'll leave you alone. It's basically. And if you, if he leaves you alone, you've grieved the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense. Okay. So ultimately, you will be, you will be made like Christ, regardless of where you get in your own personal sanctification, if that makes sense. Okay. Any questions on that so far? Okay. Let's continue on. And it says this, um, a couple, a couple notes I want to point out. Um, on the back page, on your page four, I want to uh, highlight a few things. The first bullet point I want to highlight is that when you read in context Romans uh, 28 through 30, what you're really seeing is not Paul is not discussing salvation. And this is the mistake of Calvinism. They, they, Paul is not discussing it at all. He is discussing the assurance and confidence a believer has that they will be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he's discussing. That's the context. And, and notice that the thing about this, if you look at the phrase, the phraseology, he predestined, past tense, he called, past tense, he, call, uh, he justified, past tense, he glorified, past tense. Notice that the, 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 the words that Paul are, is using are past tense. Why would he use passive? Because you and I haven't been glorified yet. Why is he using that in the past tense? Positional? Okay, good. You're on to something. What did I say God lives in? Eternal now. When God predestined that believers would be conformed to the image of Christ, okay, it's a done deal. Does that make sense? If God says this is what's going to happen to every believer, 
It's a done deal already. Yeah, Stephen. It's already done. It's already accomplished. So we call this typically what Paul is incorporating here is um, the prophetic end, I guess. It, 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 Paul's using eschatological language. It's a future thing, but yet it's like past tense because it's like it's as good as, a, as, it, as, it, as if it's already happened. So when sometimes you'll see in prophecy, God will make a prophecy, but it'll be in the past tense. And you know it's still future, but it'll be in the past tense. The messaging that God is saying, it is as good as done. Even though it hasn't occurred in your linear history, I've already seen it accomplished because I'm in the future. I have accomplished it. And because I've already accomplished it, I can use the past tense in your language in communicating that to you. So when you see this passage in the past tense, your conformity to the Lord, to Jesus... Your resurrection, your adoption, your final sanctification and glorification is already done. It's finished. It's already done. So what does that do for you as a believer when all these things are already done? You're already seated in the heavenlies, even though you haven't been there. How could Paul say you're in the heavenlies and you've never been to heaven? Because he's using language that it's already accomplished. It's already a done deal. And the fu- and in the future, God right now is having a relationship with you in the future, and right now you don't even know that. Right now, in the future, God has, is with you right now in the new heaven and the new earth in eternity, and you're not even there. Because He's there. He can be in the future. We can't. We're stuck right here. This is where we're at right now in the space-time continuum. But him, he's outside of it. I know that that boggles the mind, but that's why God can put everything in the past tense. And this is why Satan cannot undo it. He has no power to undo it because Satan is a space-time creature. And Satan is stuck in the space-time continuum. He can't get out of it because he's a creature. I don't know if he knows it, But that's why he can never be God, because God has eternity about him. That's his nature, is that he's outside of time. Now, you can ponder that all you want, but I know eventually my mind goes on tilt on that stuff. And I I have a hard time conceptualizing an eternal being. That's really hard for me to grasp, because for me, I have to have a start and an end. I have to have a history. I have to have a present and a future. And God doesn't have that. He doesn't need that. So everything happens at once. So the second coming is already occurring with God. Creation is occurring with God. The present is occurring with God. Every moment of history is occurring at the same time with him. Whoa. It's a done deal. And therefore, Lupe, what it's telling you is eternal security. And what is Paul's argument in Romans 8? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Remember, that whole argumentation? Well, built into that argument is, because of God's eternality, is uh, the preservation and, and eternal security of believers. He has done that for you. Okay, questions? I go, David, and I'll come back over here. It's past tense, isn't it? 
It's a done deal. That's right. You got it. That you're, you're, you're picking up. And you'll see a lot of prophecies. Just look for the ED in English. It's all past tense. And then that's why you, you know why it's past tense now. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's the idea. You got, you got it, Richard. Um, okay, so that being the case, it's past tense. Another couple, couple of things I want to point out before we get out of here. Um, obviously, Paul is emphasizing God's role that he guarantees believers, so that's a done deal. Uh, the also thing what I want to do is the use of the Greek word kai. And, and this breaks up the Calvinist golden chain. Now, if you get an interlinear, you'll see the word chi in there. And let me just kind of tell you where it's at in English. When you go back to verse 30 and says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these also, uh, these, all, he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these also he glorified. Now, the word chi will be in the word where also or and is, okay, in your, in your English. And what Paul is doing is bringing the chi in there because when you use a chi in the Greek, it introduces a new subject. Okay? Now, why is that important? Because every time Paul uses the word chi, he's shown you that, yes, he is talking about salvation from God's standpoint, but each one stands alone in salvation. It is not necessarily linked, like the Calvinists say. So the very fact that the Greek language is separating these things out is telling you that, yes, these are all the categories of salvation, but this golden chain that they say is all linked and airtight and nothing can get in these links is not true because the words chi are used throughout the verse 30 for each subject matter. So what I'm trying to say is this. There is no chain. These are just the facets from God's standpoint and it doesn't include the facets from man. So it's not a complete picture of a salvation of an individual. It is a partial picture coming from God. And in between these are interspersed other facets of salvation that he doesn't mention. And we know that because he uses the Greek word chi. And again, let me ask you this question. These pastors, these theologians can see the Greek just as easy as you can see it in an interlinear. And they see the words chi all over this passage. Every time a new subject is introduced here in the passage, a chi is used, a K-A-I. Why don't they take that into consideration of their golden chain? Because it doesn't work. So we're just going to ignore the chi's. Because it, that, would, that, would, that wouldn't fit our golden chain interpretation of this passage. And so at the end of the day, guys, what I'm trying to show you is this really intellectual honesty? Or is there a game being played? I know. I think, I think because they are married to a system
and they will die for that system. They're willing to misinterpret plain text for the security of their system. Because in that system, now let's get to the human level. Let's get to the human level, not the theological level, because these decisions, as you can see, are not based on theology, not based on the Greek text. It's based on being part of the group. So I'm going to support this theology because it makes me belong to a particular group. And I want to be part of that group. And I want to be published. And I don't want to be mocked. And I want to write papers. And I want to re re be respected in the Christian intellectual community. Are you following me? Many reasons why people won't just simply take it for what it says is because they want something else. They want to be looked at as being respected. I can tell you this. Calvinism dominates the intellectual market of Christianity. Almost every commentary, every book you buy is, is wrote by a Calvinist. I would say about 80% of them. That's all the market is. Even the women teachers, mostly Calvinists. How come, how come there's no other theologies, soteriology, like traditionalism, free grace? Why, why are there not a lot of writers for them? What, what, what's, what's happening? What's going on? The publishers won't do it. They get mocked and harangued, and so no one wants to put themselves out there. And so there's all this undercurrent of non-Calvinists who refuse to write anything, refuse to put themselves out there because they don't want the persecution from other Christians about their views. Because that's who dominates the Christian industrial complex. This might shock you, but did you know Joy Boy, Rick Warren, purpose-driven guy, church-friendly, church right? You know, seeker-friendly guy. Do you know he's a Calvinist? Does that shock you that a seeker-friendly, a seeker-friendly, is a Calvinist? Why? He wants to be part of the club. But he's a seeker-friendly Seeker-friendlies don't usually believe in Calvinism because that's why they're seeker-friendly. That's why they've chosen a model to turn their church into an evangelistic crusade every Sunday. But yet he's a Calvinist. And he, 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 he rubs shoulders with John Piper and the rest of those Calvinists, neo-Calvinists, like there's no tomorrow. I wonder why. Because he wants to be accepted into the group. That's what dominates American Christianity right now. That's why you don't hear any other dissenting voices. Because if they are, they're mocked. Now, a person like me, I could care less. I'm not on the circuit. I'm not writing books. I'm not a Christian celebrity. So you know what they say about me? That dude's an idiot. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. Poo, poo, poo on him. He doesn't have the education. I want to say, I don't have the education. I'll match you with what I got. And we'll see who has the better education. But to them, I'm just a country hayseed. That's all I am. And so I'm, I, I'm no significance to these 
intellectuals like Al Mohler and John Piper and those guys? Question. Back there, John. Well, it's only the reason they twist it up is because they don't know the Hebraic background. It's actually very simple. Let me ask you this principle. Being more accurate or more more clear, would it have helped him? My answer is no. It's no, it wouldn't help. Because when he was crystal clear to the Pharisees, did it help them? No. So we know what he did? He changed it on them and went into parabolic mold so they won't understand. No, no. Matthew 22 is written at the end of his career. Okay, so I want you to remember it's a parable. What significance is that? That it's a parable. Because you're, you're making the point, so why didn't he speak more clearly? But I'm telling you it's a parable. What's the, the what's the, and not perceive. Okay. Right, okay, so, to understand this, by year one and a half of the ministry of the Messiah, at that point, the religious leaders formally reject him in Matthew chapter 12. That's a formal rejection. You're talking about year one and a half. The Israel leaders have done their investigation. Now they come back, and this is the declaration. Messiah, he is not. His powers, they could not deny, but they attributed his powers to the powers of Beelzebub. He is demon-possessed, and that's how he's able to do powers. They had now formally rejected him. At that point, they commit the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has been committed, and now all of a sudden, in the next chapter, Jesus switches. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is the mystery kingdom parables. He has now switched to speaking in plain language and now flips it and goes parabolic, which is predicted by Isaiah. That Messiah would speak in parables that they ever seen would not perceive, ever hearing would not understand. Why? As a judgment to Israel, he starts speaking in parables, John. That's why he's not speaking in plain language. The Sermon on the Mount is plain language. Everything from that point on, from the the rejection of the Messiah, is parabolic. It is meant not to be understood. But it will be understood by the spiritually mature. Right? And that starts in Matthew 13. And so he goes into the discourse of the mystery kingdoms of parables. So the wedding feast that I gave you, John, or that we're talking about, that sets up what called and chosen means comes from a parable, and the language is meant to be hidden. By the way, try a parable out on an unbeliever. Right? Try it out. I mean, you could give the Sermon on the Mount to an unbeliever, and they would understand it. Give a parable to an unbeliever, and watch what happens. They'll be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. Guarantee it. Ah, okay, so good, 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 good. Good point, and that's why I want to come back to you. You reminded me of this. Why does it serve no purpose to give more information or plain language to someone that has already rejected the truth? That goes against what I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to say it a different way. Go ahead, Rory. That's true. It's less condemnation. So that's that's an attitude of grace. 
Because the more they know, the more judgment they have, right? Woe to you, Chorazim, Bethsaid, and, and Capernaum. If the miracles were done in you, were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in ashcloth, ashes and sackcloth. But because the miracles were done in you, you will have a greater judgment. Okay, so that's that. But there's another aspect I want you to, to, to pull out of this. Yes, you got it. You got it. Thank you. Pearls before swine. The pearls before swine illustration points to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs continually tells you and I, don't answer a fool according to their folly. We are not to answer to fools because we know what they'll do with that information. In fact, the book of Proverbs says that if you keep giving information to a fool, you're the fool. Okay? But yes, yeah, so back to the... the, the uh, the, 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 the pearl before swine. Two things in that passage that Jesus says, don't keep giving information to people that have already rejected the truth. And why? What's the first thing? They'll trample it under their feet. They'll reject it. The more truth you give them, the more they reject. But then what happens? What's the second part? They'll turn and attack you. The pig won't just simply trample it. He'll actually turn and go after you. You're inviting a fight if you keep giving truth to people who don't want it. You're provoking them to a fight, and they will come after you. And so once you see this, now you understand, John, when, when you look at these parables, why, are there, why, uh, why they are veiled. Because he doesn't want to provoke them anymore. The time of truth is over for them. And now he's, he's taken the disciples and then he will explain the parables to the disciples on the side so that they will understand the meanings of the parables. And therefore, it's to keep truth from people and to keep them from attacking you personally and going after you. So there's a self-preservation aspect to what Jesus is trying to say to you and I. Hence, Parables become the perfect teaching mechanism for that situation. Because they don't know what to do with it. They're hearing it, but they don't understand it. They don't know if he's talking about them. He doesn't know who he's talking about. And you can see their confusion every time they're interacting with him. Well, is he talking about dying or is he going to leave? Where's he going? Uh, it's just like confused. And that's, that's the whole point. That's the whole point is they don't know the game plan. It totally does. Okay, um, one more thing about this parable. Parables take a certain amount of maturity to understand them. I will say that. It's not plain language. Prophecy is the same way. But prophecy is different in the fact that it's not parables, it's remezes. Now, remezes are hints in the Hebrew. So when you look at prophecy... It will hint at something. It's like a flash. And that flash is meant to flash you to something you should already know. So in order to understand prophecy, you have to have a foundation of knowledge already on the Old Testament. And then when prophecy flashes in the New Testament, you say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's why the book of Revelation is a mystery to those who don't know the Old Testament. It's a complete mystery. So in order to understand the book of Revelation, 
you have to understand the Old Testament. If you understand the Old Testament, the, when John flashes things in the book of Revelation, you'll say, oh, that's that, and that's that, that's that, that's that from that prophet, and, that's, and then you have to piece it together, and then you have a cohesion, like a puzzle put together. That's why prophecy is so hard, and, 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 and that it takes a certain amount of maturity to understand that. Now, I'm speaking to the choir because you guys know that, but this is why when you go out to your friends that are Christians and they don't know prophecy, and you try to tell them what's currently going on and trying to connect things, they can't. They simply can't do that. Okay? And that's, that's the answer to that. So parables and prophecy take maturity and knowledge. Yes. So it's like being a hyper-dispensational. Yeah. And so we don't teach the Old Testament. We're going to teach Sermon on the Mount for five years. And like some of them do, or, you know, Ephesians for three years or whatever it might be. And they stay locked into a small section of the New Testament and never touch the other 66 books. You're right. That's what's happening. By the way, you think it's, a, you think it's an accident or intentional? Yeah. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.